guys, I've had a week. Yes, you have. I've had a week. You have indeed. And and, and by proxy, I've had a week. Yes, yes, you have. <laughs> and uh, you know how you you have a hard time. You you go through it, and then you just suddenly decide you're gonna have bangs. Mm, something like <laughs> one of those decisions, huh? Yeah, guys, I'm changing the theme song. <laughs> the new theme song is the bangs of this episode. Absolutely. Okay, I didn't want to just spring it on you guys. Like, so just consider this a selfie on Facebook. Oh my God, new theme, first time, almost here, three years. Here are my bangs. <laughs> Welcome back to Gigging and Streaming, where we'll always have the hours. I'm Carrie. I'm Ross. And this week we are covering the 2002 film adaptation of Michael Cunningham's Pulitzer Prize winning novel, The Hours. Guys, Stephen Daldry's back to make us feel existential. Guys, today was rough for me. You know what? It's okay, because you're here and you're talking about it and it's going to be fine. Yeah, I know. Once we talk through it, you'll feel better. I God, I hope so. <laughs> Before we get started, don't forget, go follow us on Twitter. Twitter at Kick and Stream. K-I-C-K-N-S-T-R-E-A-M. Guys, it's Pride Month. Give some gays a follow. You need to give some gays a follow. Listen, we're queer enough, okay? <laughs> we are valid. We, we we might be the B in LGBTQIA, whatever, but we are still a part of the Alphabet Mafia. Don't you forget it. <laughs> Please be rating, reviewing, and retweeting us on that bird app. Rate, review, retweet, folks. Let the bird app know how much you give a shit about us, because we know you do. Absolutely. Oh, we'd, we'd love to see some reviews. And guys, you know what we'd super love? If you were to go check us out on Patreon. Guys, head on over to your Patreons. It's kicking and streaming. You know us. Yeah. Yellow label, blue lettering, <laughs> with Gary and Ross, parental advisory. Give us a follow. Become a little onion contributor at the $5 level. Be a little onion at the 5 You'll be so glad you did. For just $5 a month, guys, you are getting access to all of our long-form content, all of our television coverage, all of the stuff we do outside the timeline, some bonus episodes for you. Like it's, that mess of a trivia game we played recently. Yeah, we've actually... It's, it's a party. There's 10 of us <laughs> and we're all having fun paying for content. I'm paying for my own content. You are paying for your own content! See how much I love it? <laughs> that could arguably mean you just love the sound of your own voice. You know what? You're right. You're absolutely right. And you know what? Sometimes I do. Sometimes I cringe, but it's okay. Guys, before we get started, just one more reminder. Big old fat trigger warning for death by suicide. The suicidal ideation in this coverage is hella relevant. It is hella relevant, and it is hella rampant, and guys, I'm not trying to ruin anybody's Monday. That's literally the last thing I would ever want to do. So, if it's too much for you guys this week, that's fine. We'll see you next week. Yeah, skip it. This is this is the sad gay subject this month. Oh, God. And you know what, guys? Queerness is not the main theme here, but it is it is spliced into the narrative very well. All right. Time's ticking. I, I guess the only other thing I'd have to say is I'm sorry. Yeah, I know. Because I picked this. You did pick I, this. I picked most of the selections this month. <laughs> Your aunt's a very lucky woman, Angelica, because she has two lives. She has the life she's leading, also the books she's writing. Mrs. Dalloway said she would buy the flowers herself. Mrs. Dalloway said she would buy the flowers herself. Sally, I think I'll buy the flowers myself. 
three different women. This life, it's what I've always wanted. I had an idea of our happiness. Each living a lie. I wish, for your sake, Leonard, I could be happy in this quietness. Each putting someone else's life. Good morning, Mrs. Dalloway. First. That is what we do. That is what people do. They stay alive for each other. What about your own life? Just wait till I die. Then you'll have to think of yourself. Mom? What's happening? He gives me that look to say, your life is so trivial. It only matters if you think it's true. My life has been stolen from me. Virginia, you have an obligation to your own sanity. I am attended by doctors everywhere. I am attended by doctors who inform me of my own interests. Baking the cake for Daddy to show him that we love him. Otherwise, he won't know we love him. That's right. I don't know what's happening. I seem to be unraveling. Come to bed, Laura Brown. I remember one morning, getting up at dawn, there was such a sense of possibility. And I remember thinking to myself, this is the beginning of happiness. I have lost those feelings forever. Mommy, I love you. Don't worry, honey, everything's fine. You're my guy. To look life in the face, to know it for what it is, to love it for what it is. It is the light of every human being. Guys, please welcome back to Kicking and Streaming, Mr. Stephen Daldry. Oh, you're going to have to fill me in because I've forgotten. Billy Elliot. Oh, my God. That's Stephen Daldry, yeah. Oh, that's great. Remember how he's also kind of in the Royal Mafia? Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. In the, in the Royal Riders Mafia, you know, with... Peter Morgan and, you know, Julian Fellows or whatever his name is, you know. The crown, the queen, the favorite. Down Abbey, like all of the old timey (laughs) imperialist shit. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, God. We love to dramatize some imperialism, don't we? Obviously, I mean, he's a three-time Olivier Award winner, a, a three-time Tony Award winner. I mean, like, his stuff is all over the board. I mean, he he helped take Billy Elliot to the stage as well. So, I mean, like, you know. Thanks, I guess, dude. He makes a good film. He does. He's a good filmmaker. He doesn't have a lot in his filmography, but what he has made is pretty damn good. Quality over quantity. Indeed. Do you want to talk a little bit about The Hours? You knew more about The Hours before I did it, or at least the book by Michael Cunningham. Well, that's because I took a class in college that was all queer lit and we didn't read the hours we read another one of uh michael cunningham's books which was called at night by nightfall nightfall i can't quite remember the title of it but that's what got me interested in him as an author and then that got doubled down on because the exact same semester i was taking a 20th century literature class in which virginia wolf was a major subject we read mrs dalloway in that class Mm -hmm. so those were the two sets of circumstances that led me to this intellectual property can you talk to me a little bit about the original story that is the axis of our narrative here mrs dalloway 
Dalloway. Oh, guys, Mrs. Dalloway. Listen, this is very characteristic of many books that were written in those times, particularly by modernists like Proust and James Joyce. The stream of consciousness writing. And one of the best ways to describe Mrs. Dalloway is that literally nothing happens and it's all thrilling. It's from 1925, so probably good read in those times, right? Yeah, it's about a woman named Clarissa Dalloway who's uh, just trying to host a party. Like, that's all her life is about at that moment. And, of course, there's other characters, there's other relationships and intrigue, and there is suicide in that book as well. Things like class divide and capitalism, existentialism, and death itself, these are all things that were on Virginia Woolf's mind when she was writing Mrs. Dalloway like she was really going through it and this book itself The Hours by Michael Cunningham is in many ways almost a essay in itself on the original book what it meant in its own time what it means now and The Hours the movie I believe is a great extension of all of those literary analyses mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it made $83 million. Oh, yeah. Only for, you know what? A $25 million budget. I can deal. This is a great movie. Mm-hmm. And Cats spent $90 million. <laughs> I love how that's always going to be the metric. The, no, that will always be the qualifier for people trying to justify the money wasted in the film industry. Absolutely. Like, just abso- what an absolute hunk of garbage that was. <laughs> All right, you've hit your 30-second cap on talking about cats for the episode. All right. Guys, it's crazy today. You might have guessed it. But we've got names, and a lot of them are returning players. Oh, my good grief. Some of them very recently. So, folks, starting off here, you know, we've got our main trio here. These three ladies. These three ladies who we'll be centering around in our narrative discussion today. The character of Virginia Woolf, the famous author is portrayed by, please welcome her back to Kicking and Streaming, Ms. Nicole Kidman. Guys, she was in Stepford Wives when we covered it back at, like, the very beginning. Did we do another thing with her? I feel like we did, but I can't remember what it is. Guys, uh, Moulin Rouge being the Ricardos just recently, where she's Lucy, where she's Lucille Ball. Oh, God. Like, Big Little Lies and Days of Thunder to die for. Mm-hmm. Eyes wide shut. Oh, but guys, if we ever end up covering Eyes Wide Shut, I'm going to have so many thoughts. She's in my favorite Batman movie. Batman Forever, yes. <laughs> oh my god. You have been on a Batman kick. <laughs> she was also on the Tom Cruise show for 11 years. And managed to get away with all of her assets and dignity intact. Good for you, girl. Is she a Scientologist? Not anymore. She quietly stepped away. As she should have. 11 years with that crazy person? I know. If you have ever seen this movie, you know one of the most iconic parts of it is that Nicole sports a putty nose throughout the entire movie. You know what my favorite piece of trivia is about this movie? What? She would take the putty nose home so she could wear it out and about so she wouldn't be recognized during her and Tom Cruise's very public divorce. That's fucking hilarious. I know! (laughs) I love that. I love that so much! Playing Laura Brown, please, please welcome back to Kicking and Streaming, 
Julianne Moore. Hi, Queen! You guys will remember Ms. Moore from our coverage of the prize winner of Defiance, Ohio. She was with us in Crazy Stupid Love. Remember the Lost World? Like Jurassic Lost yeah, World? Yeah, she's in that. Oh, that's right. She's in Boogie Nights. She's in that horrible sequel to Silence of the Lambs. Yep, 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 yep. Far From Heaven. Oh my god, still Alice. Yeah. Which I don't know if I can watch. I know. Because it, it would just absolutely destroy me. It's rough. Like this didn't absolutely destroy me, but you know. Oh no, I didn't think we were going to be able to come down here and do this. <laughs> I thought I was going to have to push. And guys, who could forget the portrayal of President Al McCoyne in the Hunger Games Mockingjay films? I could easily forget it. I hate Okay! It. I hated those last two okay. movies. <laughs> I get it. You were bored. And then playing Clarissa Vaughn today, we have the one. The only, the incomparable Meryl. Meryl Streep is back, everybody. Guys, she was with us when we did The Iron Lady. She was with us when we did The Devil Wears Prada. She was just here in August Osage County. She sure was. And she's here to ruin my life again today. (laughs) In the hours. Kramer versus Kramer. Bridges of Madison County. Doubt. Angels in America. Mm-hmm. I love Angels in America. Yeah, every time I bring, we talk about Meryl, we talk about Angels in America, and you always say how much you love it. She's actually mentioned in the book, The Hours. Oh, she is? Yeah, like Michael Cunningham mentioned her in the book, and now she's in the movie. I love that. Continuing on, please welcome to Kicking and Streaming. Please welcome Stephen Delane. He is playing Leonard Wolf for us today. I know him best as portraying third U.S. President Thomas Jefferson in HBO's John Adams. I just hate the sight of him because he plays Jefferson in that show. He's Stannis Baratheon in Game of Thrones. I always forget about that, yeah. Uh, He's also in uh, Angels in America. Um, He did Hamlet, Macbeth, you know this guy's real Shakespearean. He did Bristol Old Vic. We've had a lot of Old Vic veterans on recently, haven't we? Yes, we have. Moving on, we have Miranda Richardson. Please welcome her back. She's playing Vanessa Bell, Virginia Woolf's sister. She was with us in Sleepy Hollow. Indeed. She was also with us in Chicken Run. Yes, she was. Mr. Tweedy. Mr. Tweedy. What are the chickens doing outside the fence? Playing Richard Brown today, we have Ed Harris. Has he been with us before? I don't believe he has. Don't get him mixed up with James What's-His-Balls. James What's-His-Balls? Yeah. Ah, good old James What's-His-Balls. I always get Ed Harris, and what is his name? Is it Con? James Con. Jimmy Con? Yeah, James Con. Like, from Misery? Yeah. I always get... (laughs) Like, I'll find myself going sometimes, God, is Ed Harris the dad an elf? (laughs) No. And he's not. He's the dad and stepmom. That's right. That's right. Which is where we know him from. We also know him from Apollo 13, The Truman Show, um, The Abyss. He was in Nixon. Um, ooh, Gone Baby Gone. Played John McCain in Game Change with Julianne Moore playing Sarah Palin. Barf. I, I Guys, don't watch Game Change. <laughs> don't do it. Guys, play... Stop. Playing the character of Sally Lester, who is Meryl Streep, Clarissa Vaughn's lover in this narrative. Please welcome her back. Allison Janney, everyone. Allison Janney is back again, and I'm so happy about it. Ross is jazzed because she is obviously C.J. Craig on the West Wing. Yes, I'm always jazzed because she's C.J. Craig. She was with us when we did The Help. She was Charlotte Phelan in The Help. She was also with us when we covered Juno. Mm-hmm. Guys, I can't believe it, but I think... And I'll probably find out that I'm wrong. (laughs) 
But I think we're welcoming for the first time to kicking and streaming John C. Riley. Yeah, guys. <laughs> like, the only thing I could think of that we would have covered with him in it is Chicago. Yeah, and I'm not seeing anything that, I mean, obviously, you know, we've got What's Eating Gilbert Grape. Uh, yeah. Bo- he was in Boogie Nights with Julianne Moore. Uh, Magnolia. You and I should watch Magnolia. Magnolia sounds upsetting when it's described I to mean, me. It probably is, but obviously Chicago. He was nominated for an Oscar for Chicago. Mr. Cellophane. And then, like, he was in um, Step Brothers, and, with, yeah, which with, is what most people know him from, I feel with like. With Will Ferrell at Talladega Nights, The Ballad of Ricky Bobby. Uh-huh. Uh, he's uh, in Guardians of the Galaxy. That's right. Uh-huh. Listen, it's not that I don't like John C. Riley. It's that John C. Riley is in a lot of movies I don't like, but it has nothing to do with him. Moving on, we've got, we've also got, please welcome back to Kicking and Streaming, Tony Collette, who was just with us last month. Yeah. She was with us when we did Little Miss Sunshine. I know her best. I will always know her best as the mom from The Sixth Sense. Oh, man. That movie's rough. I mean, that's the first thing I that I could distinguish her in. Anytime anyone ever brings up Krampus... Yeah. I'm like, wow, I tried so hard to make myself believe that wasn't a thing that was happening. That now every time someone says, you know, Krampus, I'm like, oh, God, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that is a thing. That's how I'm going to be when people bring up the new horror Winnie the Pooh thing. Yeah. (laughs) No, we don't have time. We We, we we do not have time. (laughs) Please welcome back to Kicking and Streaming, Margot, character actress Margot Martindale. Who was just with us in August, Osage County. Indeed. We just enjoyed her in in American Crime Story, Impeachment. (laughs) Linda, I can't give you a book deal. (laughs) Some more honorable mentions this week, guys. We have Claire Danes as Julia. Jeff Daniels as Lewis. Oh, but also Dame Aileen Atkins. Who actually wrote the screenplay for the 97 adaptation of Mrs. Dalloway. She did. She did. What a placement. I know. I see you, Steve Daldry. Okay, let's go. Okay, guys, we're getting ready to get started here. I just need to tell you all up front that one of the most frustrating aspects of this movie, at least for the two of us and our purposes today, this movie jumps all over space and time. We have three distinct narratives going on intertwining around each other today. Like, literally at three different time periods at different corners of the globe. Because so. that, that's what Michael Cunningham has tried to capture here, right? He has tried to take aspects of the original narrative and twist them around each other in parallel meanings. And so we're going to try and keep you grounded. Every time we switch locations, we're going to be like, this is where and when we are. Okay. To start out, all right? We're in 1941. We're in Sussex. That county's just outside of Greater London Mm -hmm. in England. That raging river. Oh, I know. Sets you up every time, doesn't it? It's the River Ouse. I was going to say, please pronounce the name of this river for me because I'm convinced I'm not doing it correctly. It's not Ouse. It's not Ouse. I think it's Ouse. So I am pronouncing it correctly. Like Ouse, you know? Like River Ouse? I'm not sure. Um, Guys, this opening scene is not fun at all. (laughs) Who we're seeing here is Virginia Woolf. This is Nicole Kidman as Virginia Woolf. I wrote, Madam is going out and being very sneaky about it. Yeah, she's sneaking out of the house. And we get the opening narration that is quoted directly from Virginia Woolf's infamous suicide note. Dearest, I feel certain that I am going mad again. 
I feel we can't go through another of these terrible times, and I shan't recover this time. When, like, Leonard comes in the house and sees the two letters sitting on the mantle, one for Leonard and the other for Vanessa. Yeah, Leonard's her husband and Vanessa's her sister. You have been entirely patient with me. And incredibly good. Everything is gone from me, but the certainty of your goodness. I can't go on spoiling your life any longer. I don't think two people could have been happier than we have been. She fills her pockets with stones and forces herself beneath the surface of the river ooze. I could have done without the shots of her body skimming the bottom of the river. Yeah, no, that was too much. Like her shoe coming off. I could have done without that. Okay, guys, yeah. We've got three settings and three stories here for you. Yeah. So we are taken out of that into Los Angeles in 1951. These are the Browns. This is Dan, Laura, and little Richie. Oh, God. Dan and Laura have been married for a while. Richie's like seven. And they've got their cute little 50s life in Los Angeles. You know, he's a veteran. It's his birthday today. Yeah. And, um, you know, this is the trope of the housewife. The little cute house on the little cute street with the crucifix on the door. As we're getting shots of her waking up, we are transitioning into 1923. In Richmond, which is a city in Greater London. I love how all the time they're talking about going from Richmond to London in this. It's the same city. (laughs) It's just a different part of London. It takes 30 minutes to get from Richmond to London by train. Which is absurd. (laughs) Trains don't move that fast. You're right. It is 1923. (laughs) Leonard and Virginia Woolf are a married couple. Leonard is a publisher and an editor. They are currently living and working out of Hogarth House. And of course, by the 20s, Virginia Woolf is a name. Yeah. At least in British society. People know who she is. She's not not famous. Exactly. She's quite a notable author. She's been forcibly moved out here. Like, Virginia Woolf's mental health was never great. She's already got decades of fierce mood swings and cyclical depression under her belt at this point. Mm -hmm. And her doctors feel that if she lives in like a quiet, remote countryside, that she'll be less stimulated and therefore her mental illness will not be exacerbated. The yellow wallpaper. Listen, she didn't... By Charlotte Perkins Gilman. That's what I was going to say. She didn't write the yellow wallpaper, but she sure is living living it. it. God damn it. And then we also see a transition into New York City in the year 2001, the year before this movie came out. So as modern as they could possibly make it. (laughs) Yeah. And this is where we have Clarissa, Clarissa Vaughn. She herself is an editor. Uh I I think that's funny. There's lots of parallels between Clarissa's story and the Mrs. Dalloway, Virginia Woolf part of it. She lives in her apartment with her partner, Sally, Allison, Janning. Oh my God, that gorgeous brownstone, that gorgeous girlfriend. I know. Like you'd think Clarissa would have the best life, right? So, you know, it's obviously you have Laura in the 50s who's reading the book. You've got Virginia in the 20s who's writing the book. And then you have... Clarissa in 2001, who's living the book. Yeah, it's really weird. The Clarissa storyline is the most interesting and the most confusing at the same time. It's a new day in these three worlds. I say the visit, the birthday, and the party. 
Oh, okay. Yeah, you know what I mean? Like the timelines of those three separate days. Mm-hmm. Okay. So like the birthday is like in the 50s in LA, the visits like in the 20s in Richmond, and then the party is in New York City in 2001. Okay, Beca- okay. Because earlier when I asked you to explain about Mrs. Dalloway, this central character we have, Clarissa Dalloway, who... Meryl Streep's character is named after, Mm -hmm. you know, she is planning a party for her friends, right? Yeah, that's the whole plot of Mrs. Dalloway. All she's trying to do is plan a party for her friends, and she has such existential fear that if she cannot make this party a good one, that she is not worth anything. Exactly. And might as well not even exist, Mm -hmm. which just kind of puts you where Virginia Woolf's head was probably at in these dark times that she was writing this. Especially with all the expectations that were placed on her on top of being mentally ill. Each woman is getting ready in their own way this morning, and what we eventually get to see here is that Virginia sets to write the story, Laura sets to read it, and Clarissa is setting to basically live what's been written. You had breakfast? Yes. Liar. Virginia, it's not my insistence, it's your own doctor's. I'm going to send Nellie up with some fruit and a bun. Leonard, I believe I may have a first sentence. When she says I might have a first sentence... Does that just set your little heart aflame? Like, my brain turns on for her. (laughs) Guys, the first sentence is a tough one. When she's choosing her pen and sits down, lights her little cigarette that she rolled herself. The romanticism of it all. (laughs) Mrs. Dalloway said she would buy the flowers herself. Mrs. Dalloway said she would buy the flowers herself. Sally, I think I'll buy the flowers myself. And there you have it. You get it in every (laughs) timeline. So Laura Brown is pregnant, right? She's got a baby on the way. This is the 50s housewives. Yes. We're four months away in 1951. Dan, listen, you don't get to learn a lot about Dan, her husband, throughout. He's absent for most of it. But he's not a bother. Like, he's not. He he seems like a very loving husband. And a nice dude. Genuinely loves her, but... He doesn't know how to connect to her or even really who she is Mm -hmm. because much of their lives together has been based around his version of happiness. Yeah. And therefore, he's never tried to understand his wife. And that's kind of a little bit of what she's dealing with here. He just kind of knows the magazine side of relationships, like things that they like he went out and bought her flowers on his birthday. I know. Like, that's very thoughtful, but it has nothing to do with knowing who she is or what makes her happy. It's your birthday. You shouldn't be out buying me flowers. Well, you were still sleeping. So? Well, we decided it would be better if we let you sleep in a little, didn't we? Morning, bug. They have seven-year-old Richie. This Jack Ravello kid, he's just so fucking cute. He is. He's just like, he, and so good for this, too. Like, the way, a lot of his, a lot of his acting is mostly face. Yeah. You know what I mean? He doesn't have too many lines. He's a kid. Here's what I wrote. Laura really wants Dan to feel right today. That's why she wants to make sure every stage of today goes well for him. It's because she believes it is her purpose to please him. A very Mrs. Dalloway type anxiety. Indeed, indeed. Like, 
she's so nervous that any part of this day could just go to pieces. It's a little spooky. Uh Uh-huh. Because, like, she's just so woefully sad underneath all of it, very dissatisfied with where she's at in life. Yeah, she loves her kid, and she might even love her husband a little bit, but I don't know. I feel like she's just trying to scrape together enough personhood to give him the best birthday she can, but she doesn't have a lot to go around. Oh, I'm going to make a cake. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make the cake for Daddy's birthday. Mommy, can I help? Can I help make the cake? Of course you can, sweet pea. I'm not going to do anything without you. In 2001, (laughs) Clarissa, Meryl Streep, is stressed because she's just trying to make this party she's having tonight, go the way it should. Oh, this party theme again. Yes, indeed. She has a dear friend slash former lover named Richard. And Richard is a poet, a very notable poet. He has won the Carruthers Prize, which is apparently the best you can do for poetry. (laughs) And she is having a party tonight to celebrate his achievements in her very tiny apartment. They're going to go to the ceremony tonight. They're going to have the party. She's going to have like 60 people in this tiny apartment she's got food for an army i love i love it after when sally's like when they're in the kitchen she looks in the sink and there's all those crabs in the sink i love her i love sally oh my god great i'm thrilled oh good what if nobody comes this is clarissa vaughn yes i am just confirming that you're sending the car to pick me up first So Clarissa decided she was going to buy the flowers herself, right? As Mrs. Dalloway does. So she goes to the florist shop to pick up some flowers for Richard. And this is where we get that lady who wrote the screenplay... You're talking about Dame Eileen Atkins. Oh, and so I should put some respect on my voice. The, gra- the lady, the Dowager Lady Dashwood. Excuse from me. From What a Girl Wants. That's right. <laughs> One of the other things that we're celebrating tonight is that Richard has a new book. He's published a book. It's a novel. It's not poetry. <laughs> Clarissa's like hydrangeas, I think, and buckets of roses. And the way she's just like, I tried to read Richard's book. <laughs> I actually tried to read Richard's novel. You did? Oh, I know. It's not easy. I know. It did take him 10 years to write. Maybe it just takes another 10 to read. It's you, isn't it? What is it? In the novel. Isn't it meant to be you? Oh, I see. Yeah. (laughs) Sort of. I mean, in a way. The way Clarissa's like, oh, you know, well, you use things from real life and you dramatize them. He, the, way, the way she goes, he just makes them his own. Which is not that, true. That's potent, it Clarissa. Is, it is very potent. <laughs> it's also just patently not true. He barely changed anything for this narrative. They're kind of hitting us over the head with the idea that Clarissa's supposed to be a literary allegory unto herself. A woman's whole life. In a single day. Just one day. And in that day, her whole life. You just played that line, right? I'm going to say it again. A woman's whole life in a single day. Just one day and in that her whole life. That's like when we were reading Hamlet and Jill was teaching us about what it's like when characters take forever to say nothing. Yeah. That's what she's doing. I mean, I think it's a remarkable... But, like, she does it so well. She performs it so well that you're like, 
Yeah. No, here's the thing. A whole day in a woman's life and a woman's life and a whole day and the day and the life and the life and the day. No, no, yeah. no, no, no. Hey, 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 hey. I'm going to speak up on my girl Virginia's behalf here. I know there's a deeper meaning here, but please explain. Like, think about the structure of that sentence. Just one day and in that her whole life. It's a commentary on how... One day in a woman's life, the inanity of it, the responsibility, the chores, the duty involved, that is her whole life. Indeed. See? Okay, yes. (laughs) Understandable. It's not as cyclical as it seems. Clarissa rides up in the dirtiest, shakiest elevator to Richard's apartment. Yeah, no, I don't know what street or what neighborhood he's supposed to live on, but this is so the same building where Mark, Mimi, and Roger lived in. Yeah, totally. rent. (laughs) Um, Richard is not doing so hot. He's got clinical depression. He's infected with AIDS. He's got financial difficulties. He's dying. Yeah. And and it's very difficult to watch him pass over time. Mrs. Dalloway, it's you. Yes, it's me. It's me. Come in. (sighs) Richard. It's a beautiful morning. Calls her Mrs. Dalloway. Yeah, no, that's like his little pet name for her. This will be my least favorite thing for the rest of the film. Because it's pretty shoehorned in there, don't you think? Leave her alone. Clarissa functions as a kind of caretaker for him. And he truly loves her, but if she isn't caring for him, then she feels she might as well be nothing. Right? Like, from the moment she gets there, she's mothering the absolute shit out of him. She's trying to gas him up about tonight's ceremony. It's a big achievement. And he can feel no pride in it. Big relate. He believes that they are only awarding him the Carruthers because he is dying. Yeah. he's He kind of knows what the critics and his readers think of his work, that it's tedious mm-hmm. and long and difficult. A very popular criticism of Virginia Woolf's work. Exactly. And the thing about this for Clarissa is that they used to be in love. Yeah, when they were very young, and like 18 and 19. It's profoundly sad to see him dying in her worrying herself sick over this because while he doesn't even want to go to this ceremony or go to this party tonight, she feels like it's the only thing that's going to hold her together as a person. And she's like staking her self-worth on it. He treats it like it's this trivial thing. And for her, who's there for him in every moment she can be, that's killing her inside and he doesn't even know it. I can't go through with it, Clarissa. Oh, why do you say that? I can't. Why? Because I wanted to be a writer, that's all. So? I wanted to write about it all. Everything that happens in a moment. The way the flowers looked when you carried them in your arms. This towel, how it smells, how it feels, this thread. And then he just kind of sets on this, like, monologue, this beautifully written monologue. I just think he's a little addled in this moment, but he's like, you don't understand, I wanted to write about it all. Everything that happens in a moment. (laughs) I wrote, fuck. That's why a lot of her work was considered tedious, because she could write for 12 paragraphs about how a blanket made her feel when it brushed against her skin. Stuff like that. All of our feelings, the history of them, who we once were, and I failed. Yeah. Oh, 
oof, I understand what he's saying. He's like, my work didn't live up to what I wanted it to be. Mm-hmm. And they're going to give me this sham award for it because I'm dying. And now at the end of his life, he feels like he's got nothing to show for it. He looks at her and goes, Would you be angry if I died? If you died? Who is this party for? What do you mean, who is it for? What are you asking? What are you trying to say? I'm not trying to say anything. Mm-hmm. I'm saying... I think I'm only staying alive to satisfy you. Well, so that is what we do. That is what people do. They stay alive for each other. And the way she's in almost tears and she's like, that is what we do. That is what people do. They stay alive for each other. And I'm like... Yes, Clarissa, I love that energy, girl. Yes. She's basically like, pick yourself up. I'm going to be back at 3.30 to help you get dressed for the party. (laughs) Back in 1923, (laughs) Virginia's hands stained with ink. That was the life of a writer back then. (laughs) Yeah, it was a mess. Not asking for permission to go on a walk. If it's all right, I thought I might take a short walk. Not far? No, just for air. Go then. If I could walk mid-morning, I'd be a happy man. Like, the way he, as she's going out, the way he goes, if I could walk mid-morning, I'd be a happy man. This just proves just how much he really doesn't understand. Yeah. He listens to her doctor and her doctor only. Doesn't listen to her about how she feels, how her, quote, condition makes her feel. He just can't wrap his head around why she's not happier. But then I feel his concerns are validated when she's walking around in public going, she'll die. She's going to die. That's what's going to happen. That's it. She'll kill herself. She'll kill herself over something that doesn't seem to matter. And all those people walking by her while she's talking under her breath. I understand Ross, she's... she's writing. I, know, I understand what she's doing, Carrie. It's just... <laughs> she's writing in her but head. But the way she's just walking around going, she'll die. She'll kill herself. She's That's what's going to happen. She's not a danger to anybody else. Apparently, but like... The way she is just kind of like lowly, manically saying that to herself... But, like, she's also looking for her own reasons, I feel like. Mm -hmm. She's trying to figure out what to do with the character. But in her own mind, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's a little close to home. Back in 1951, Richie is helping Laura sift flour. Oh, it's cute. This is the beginning of my frustration with everyone criticizing Laura's baking skills. (laughs) Laura's having an off day. Most of her days are off days. Give her a break if you only knew what was happening under the surface. When Richie goes... Mommy, it isn't that difficult. You have to grease the pan and all this stuff. And she's like, I know how to do that, honey. Even Mommy knows how to do that. And, like, we're we're baking, we're, like, putting all of the ingredients in a bowl. And, like, the way she looks at that child and goes, I just want to do this for Daddy. Because it's his birthday. That's right. We're baking the cake to show him that we love him. Otherwise, he won't know we love him. There is something very warped about that. It's like it's the only way she knows to properly show her affection for her husband. Which means I feel like she can't express an appropriate amount of emotion towards her husband. Maybe because she feels 
hardly any attachment to her husband. Uh-huh. Mm. Is and somebody repressing some feelings, Laura? A little bit. Because you know what, guys? She messes up this cake. She sure does. It is flat as a tire, like, without air in it. That's how bad this goes. This is where Kitty Barlow rings the doorbell. I love Kitty. She's so pretty. I love Tony Collette. I am in love with her and her teeth. The hair's a little Mrs. Eisenhower, but, like, <laughs> wouldn't it be? You know what I mean? Hi, Kitty. Hi, am I interrupting? Oh, of course not. Come in. Are you all right? Why, sure. Hi, Richie. Sit down. I've got coffee on. Kitty and her husband, Ray, they're their neighbors, right? And they have a lot of friends. Laura doesn't. Yeah. And Laura thinks that's very nice. (laughs) She likes Kitty. She likes being around Kitty. She really likes being around Kitty. Guys, it's about to get gay. So yeah, Kitty needs to have an operation today to remove what she describes as a uterine growth. It's a tumor, right? I think that's what it is. What else could it be? What did the doctor say exactly? That's probably what the trouble's been about getting pregnant. The thing is, I mean, you know, I've been really happy with Ray. Now it turns out there was a reason. There was a reason I couldn't conceive. You're lucky, Laura. I don't think you can call yourself a woman until you're a mother. Kitty has all of her self-worth tied up in conception, and that is true of most women in these times. Like, your only job was to get married and have a baby. At least of white women. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's obviously different when you consider the intersectionality, but yeah, most white women, that was their quote, job, get married, have a baby. I feel so incredibly sad for her. I know. That she feels that way. She's so scared that she has to go in and do this. Like, just so that she and her husband can have the hope of having a child. And she starts sobbing. And Laura can't stand to see Kitty sob. And Laura gets up and starts giving her head kisses. Come here. I'm doing fine. Really, I know. I know you are. <laughs> I'm more worried about Ray. If anything is not good with this stuff. Forget about Ray. Hmm? Just forget about Ray. And you know, Kitty closes her eyes as the head kisses begin. Uh-huh. And then Laura works her way down Kitty's face until they both share in a six second. <laughs> Kiss on the lips with eyes closed. Uh Uh-huh. Kitty is not exactly rebuffing her. Nope. And then when they finally do break apart, the way Kitty looks at her and just goes, you're sweet. We're not talking about this. Yeah, I know. Like, like, Kitty stands up and she starts giving her dumb directions for feeding the dog. Yeah, she's like, I need you to feed the dog. That's why I came over here. You know the routine, right? Half a can in the evening and... Check the water now and then, and Ray will feed him in the morning. Kitty, you didn't mind? What? I didn't mind what? Yeah, we're absolutely not talking about it. And, like, I feel like, I don't know. I don't know if that's going to make Laura feel cringe or feel like, oh... 
okay, you yeah, know. Yeah, like, I don't know, man, but, like, here's the thing that I have written. The kid is witnessing all of this. <laughs> Little Richie is sitting in the living room and watched them do the whole thing and the way <laughs> she's so embarrassed. What? What do you want? And then he just runs off because he's scared of her now. Like... Oh, man. He and just saw something he wasn't supposed to see. And she throws that shitty cake away. Thank God. Back in 1923, Vanessa Bell has arrived to visit the wolves. Miranda Richardson. This is Virginia's sister. Vanessa Bell was an, a painter. Yeah. A very famous artist. A modernist painter. Mm-hmm. And she brought her children, Quentin, Julian, and Angelica, with her. She's an hour and a half early. And how are you, sister? Frantic. It's been ridiculous in London. Ridiculous? How? Busy. Why is busy ridiculous? I would have invited you to our party, but I knew you wouldn't come. Did you? How did you know that? I thought you never came to town. They've been experiencing some distance lately, obviously, because Leonard has been trying to keep Virginia out of the city. Mm -hmm. It's not that he's trying to keep her isolated from her loved ones. It's that her loved ones live in the city and he needs her to stay in the country so that her mental illness is not, quote, exacerbated by the hustle and bustle of London town. When they're in the garden and Vanessa is talking about how frantic and busy her life is, she says it's ridiculous. Uh huh. And I love when Virginia goes, "Why does busy mean ridiculous?" Uh huh. And I'm like, "Oh, somebody wants more things to do with their day." No, Virginia would love to be busy. This is a sister's concern. Yeah. You know what I mean? She obviously wants the best for her, but she has no idea what it's like to be dealing with what she's dealing with. Yeah. So they just they cannot connect at that level. Again, just someone else who doesn't understand. It's so isolating. Exactly. When you're the only one feeling those kinds of emotions. Also, who calls their own mother by their affectionate diminutive? I mean, if we've never called our mom Jules. I know. You know what I mean? But like... It's, if my kids call me Rossi, I'm rioting. Like, you're, you're talking about the fact that the kids call her Nessa. Nessa. Their own mom. Nessa! Yeah, I don't know what that's about. Whatever. The kids have found a bird that's close to death. Julian, you weirdo, let that bird alone. And so we're making this macabre little funeral pyre for this bird. Time to be weird, Auntie Virginia. Like... Oh, God. This little girl, Angelica... The way she's also dressed like an angel, making a grave uh-huh. for a bird. I'm like, Mm-mm. It's a little on the nose. It's a little on the nose. And I'm like, what? And then the way that little girl turns to Virginia and goes, She looks very small. Yes. Yes, that's one of the things that happens. We look smaller. But very peaceful. The shot of her laying down to look at the bird on her side is so Virginia Woolf. It's, she's just lying on her side looking into that bird's cold, dead eyes. That's the thing, guys. She's she, getting a feel for what it's like. like. She was obsessed with death in that part of her life. She'd already lost so many family members, her mother, her father. So, like, she'd experienced all of these emotional and literal deaths in her life, and she was just kind of obsessed with the macabre. Yeah, yeah. Who could blame her? Back in 2001, Clarissa is in the middle of cooking dinner for some 60 people. Clarissa, turn that fucking music down. It's the <laughs> middle of the day. You think the opera's too loud? I'm delighted. Well, now. <laughs> oh. Oh. I, 
feel like I'm interrupting. Oh, why? No. Well, I, you know, I, I know the ceremony isn't until five, but I flew in this morning. <gasps> well, Richard's <laughs> going to be thrilled. He'll be thrilled to see you. Ex-boyfriend Lewis is here. It's and I, I not should, her ex-boyfriend. Not her ex-boyfriend. Richard's ex. Yeah. Lewis Waters or whatever his name is. That's right. And, um, well, Lewis, um... You couldn't have made this day any more awkward. <laughs> you don't go to visit Richard when you get here, but you'll go see Clarissa because you know she's got the scoop on all things Richard. That means he gets to know what's going on with Richard without the physical and emotional agony of being in his presence. And this is awkward for Clarissa. They've both been deeply in love with the same man at different times in their lives. And like, Lewis is a creative himself. He teaches drama in San Francisco. Also, let's denormalize being in love with your students, that's all I'm saying. Please stop doing that! And he's like, I read the book. A whole chapter on should she buy some nail polish? And then guess what? After 50 pages, she doesn't. <laughs> the whole thing seems to go on for eternity. Nothing happens. And then wham, for no reason, she kills herself. It's tedious. You have a whole chapter of whether or not she should buy some nail polish, and then after 50 pages, she doesn't, which is a complete at at Virginia Woolf. Oh, d definitely. That is stream of consciousness writing. Like, I'm I'm being completely serious. She goes out on a shopping trip. It lasts like three chapters. In Mrs. Dalloway? In Mrs. Dalloway, yeah. And like, Mrs. Dalloway itself is not particularly an exciting book until that guy throws himself out the window at the end. Sorry, spoiler. Okay, all right. <laughs> <laughs> and then Lewis brings up Wellfleet. Oh, God, tell me about Wellfleet. Wellfleet is a town on Cape Cod in Massachusetts. Oh, is it? Yeah, it is. Ew, I didn't know it was in Cape Cod. Clarissa, Clarissa has a panic attack at the very mention of Wellfleet. I can identify. <laughs> Sometimes you have a place where you and your young friends are young people together and a bunch of really great and really bad shit happens. Yeah. And that was Wellfleet for them. They obviously went to college in Massachusetts together, her and all of her sad friends now. <laughs> yeah. And who are all coming to this party tonight. I seem to be unraveling. I shouldn't have come. No, it's not you. It's not you. It's more like having a presentiment. Do you know what I'm saying? Oh, God. It's probably just nerves about the party. You know, bad hostess. <laughs> The way she literally goes, I seem to be unraveling, which is a direct quote from Mrs. Dalloway. Yes, it is. <laughs> and she feels like if she cannot pull this party off, she will just be the worst. It's just too much. Yeah, the moment she gets emotional over Richard, she snaps right back to thinking about this party. She really is distracting herself. She said, when she's like, it doesn't matter how much I've done for this man, you were always more important. And I'm like, Lewis? Yeah. This guy? Jeff Daniels? <laughs> It doesn't matter. It was you he stayed with. It was you he lived with. I had one summer. The day I left him, I got on a train and made my way across Europe. I felt free for the first time when Lewis gets in her face and is just like, listen, the day I left Richard was the beginning of the rest of my life. I felt free for the first time in years. Like, I bet Richard was not easy to live with. Definitely not. 
And, like, the fact that he didn't feel peace until he left Richard, like, I also hate that for him. Sounds like a big trope in this is we all just kind of need to drop what we're holding on to one way or another just so you can either move forward or not. Back in 1951, Laura has made the most fabulous birthday cake, and now we're going to go drop Richie off at Mrs. Latch's house so that she can run an errand. Mrs. Latch's character, actress Margot Martindale, (laughs) she takes Richie over to her house. He's got his Lincoln Logs. (laughs) I miss my Lincoln Logs. I know you do. Oh, I miss those things. I was thinking about you when he was building with the Lincoln Logs. Mommy, I don't want to do this. I have to go, honey. Your mommy has things she has to do. Come in, I got cookies. Okay, baby. You have to be brave now. Oh, this is where you first figure it out. You know what she's going to do. Because before she left the house, she filled her purse up with all these bottles from the medicine cabinet. (sighs) Laura frantically drives to a hotel where she checks in and... Yeah, she's going to attempt to overdose. Yeah. I don't know why she brought Mrs. Dalloway with her. Maybe it's just because the most, maybe because it's the most meaningful connection she has in the world right now is to this book. Yeah, she pulls the book out of her purse and she's lining up all the pill bottles on the duvet next to her and she starts reading Mrs. Dalloway. And it doesn't help at all that she's reading a part of Mrs. Dalloway that's fixated on death. Did it matter that she must inevitably cease completely? All this must go on without her. Did she resent it? Or did it not become consoling to believe that death ended absolutely? She falls asleep reading this book, and she has a dream that the hotel room that she's staying in floods with river water, just like the river that Virginia drowned herself in in the beginning. Mm-hmm. And like she goes under the water, and it's so it's so disconcerting. Yeah, I know. It's jarring as hell. And we cut to the 20s, and Virginia is like spacing out in the middle of a conversation. <laughs> Vanessa's like, um, are you still with us? Like, she's thinking about the story. And Angelica's like, what were you thinking about? And without skipping a beat, she's like, (laughs) okay, tiny child, I was going to kill my heroine. I was going to kill my heroine. But I've changed my mind. (gasps) I can't. And then you see in the 50s, Laura lean up in bed. I fear I may have to kill someone else instead. The bells are pushing off. We're getting out of here. The day's been weird with Auntie Virginia. Yeah. And, like, Virginia's devastated that her sister's leaving. She's like, what are you doing tonight? (laughs) And she's like, oh, I'm just going to this boring dinner, you know? You you would never find it interesting. Virginia's like, bitch, try me. Yeah. Um, okay. We need to talk about it. It's a jarring moment. Yeah, it's a moment that doesn't make a lot of sense. Are you gonna Are you gonna let me explain it, or would you? Can I take this one? Go ahead, because I don't want to. Because, like, guys, here's what happens. I don't get what's happening here. No, I know. Vanessa is on her way out the door, and Virginia's practically pleading with her to stay. And I think it's because Vanessa represents a life that she misses. Your return to what? Tonight, 
Oh, just some insufferable dinner. Not even you could envy Virginia. <laughs> but I do. She misses being able to go to parties and, like, socialize and not be infantilized and fussed over all the time. And the only semblance of that is walking out the door. Exactly. While she's going to be locked in behind it. Uh-huh. Okay. And so they get close to each other. They're going to embrace, like, a, a goodbye embrace. And, guys, Virginia very passionately kisses her own sister on the mouth. Yeah, and Vanessa's very jarred and disturbed by it. Like, she's not returning the affection. I almost thought it was Virginia being like, I told you I was getting better, I'm not. Is this the way she's showing her? Like, I think she's trying to show her that she is better. Because if people think she's better, they'll let her return to normal existence. Why on earth would she think this was the way? I don't know. To convey that. I really don't know, bud. I I just don't get it. And the way she just helplessly goes, Say something, Nessa. Didn't you think I seemed better? (laughs) Please, Virginia, you say better. You think... You think I may one day escape? One day? Vanessa's like, mm-hmm, yeah, one day, and just, like, runs out. Oh, no, oh, feeling a little imprisoned, are we? Like... That's some desperation. Um, back in 2001, Claire Danes is here. Oh, my God. This is Julia, Clarissa's daughter. The way Julia goes, oh, they're all here, aren't they? All of the ghosts from your past. Oh, shit. They're all here, aren't they? All the ghosts... All the ghosts are assembling for the party. He's so weird. Oh, what? You can't see that? You can't see that Lewis Waters is weird? I can see that he's sad. Well, all your friends are sad. Julia's like, you and all your weird friends are sad and weird. I don't know if you knew this about yourselves. <laughs> the way she's, this conversation the two of them are having, where Clarissa's just like, oh, I was happiest years ago, and I can never recapture it, and I'm so profoundly sad about that. Clarissa! What about your daughter and your life partner? Yeah, it does miff Julia off a little bit. Uh-huh! And, like, the thing Clarissa says about how she used to feel a sense of possibility... Like it was the beginning of happiness. Never occurred to me. It wasn't the beginning. It was happiness. It was the moment. I feel like she's just generally unhappy because she spent her entire life taking care of other people. And what she's not feeling is the sense of security and confidence that typically comes from sorting yourself out in your early 30s. Yes. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes. She's been so focused on other people that she's had no time to sort herself out. Back in 1923, Virginia is sneaking out. She's had enough. She's going to London. She can't stand it anymore. I love this scene because Leonard realizes she's missing, right? Mm -hmm. And goes out after her because he's afraid she's going to hurt herself. Scolding her on the train platform. Yeah, she's on the train platform waiting for a train to London to get here. And he's like, what the fuck are you doing? You disturb me when you disappear. I haven't disappeared. When he just breaks down and is like, you have a history. Yeah, you can't do shit like this. You can't just treat this like it's nothing. We brought you here to save you from the irrevocable damage you intended upon yourself. You've tried to kill yourself twice. I live daily with that threat. I set up the press. 
we set up the printing press not just for itself, not just purely for itself, but so that you might have a, a ready source of absorption and of remedy. Listen, I don't want to be all poor Leonard, but poor Leonard. Oh, I can't even imagine what he's living through day to day. And I mean, like, if he took a little bit more time to understand her and not just listen to her doctors, when she's like, who is who is a better judge of myself than myself? Yeah. Why can't you understand that? Like, it's got to be a taxing existence knowing the threat every day that she may just be gone and he never knows when or if it's going to happen. And it's so sad that it eventually does happen. You live with the threat, you tell me. You live with the threat of my extinction. Leonard, I live with it too. This is my right. It is the right of every human being. I choose not the suffocating anesthetic of the suburbs, but the violent jolt of the capital. That is my choice. The meanest patient, yes, even the very lowest, is allowed some say in the matter of her own prescription. Thereby she defines her humanity. Her point is that she should be allowed to live her life on her own terms. I get to decide what the manner of my condition is. I get to make the choices about how I live or don't live. I love this moment where Leonard just bucks up and is like, very well, London then. But then he just kind of like has a moment where he just is like helplessly, silently sobbing. Mm -hmm. And she's watching him the whole time. And you can see in that moment that she understands him mm -hmm. and how he's feeling. Mm -hmm. And while he still can't totally understand what she's trying to say, which just makes it so much more poignant for me. Mm -hmm. um, Laura, back in 1951, returns for Richie. Yeah, guys. Oh, my God. When she was pulling up to the house, I was just letting out a big sigh of relief. Like, oh, thank God. She's driving Richie back to the house. This kid knows this woman is on the brink. He, I don't know, man. It's like the, how the animals know a storm is coming, right? Like somehow this kid knows that something bad has either just happened or is about to happen. That's why he keeps telling her that he loves her. What is it, honey? Mommy, I love you. I love you too, baby. Don't worry, honey. Everything's fine. You're going to have a wonderful party. And we've made your daddy such a nice cake. I love you, sweetheart. You're my guy. And his little grin? I can't. I know. And this is where we realize, guys, oh shit, Richie is Richard. Yeah, if you didn't put that together already. <laughs> Cut back to 2001, we're seeing Richard... Clarissa's former lover, the writer, stroking a wedding photo of Laura Brown. Yeah, his mother from the 50s. This scene is unforgivable. Oh no, guys, the, uh, it's not that everything we haven't been talking about wasn't triggering. It This is where it gets bad. Dregar, warning, you spoiled it anyway. I... <laughs> <laughs> Richard took too many of his pills at once and he's being a little erratic. Obviously, Clarissa is here to help him get dressed for the ceremony. And he's like, listen. I don't want to do any of that shit tonight. I realized if I just let a little light in, I could clear my thoughts. He's manically moving everything away from in front of the window so that more light can come in. And he is just, he is, he's not present. I don't think I can make it to the party, Clarissa. Uh, you don't have to go to the party. You don't have to go to the ceremony. You don't have to do anything you don't want to do. You can do as you like. But I still have to face the hours, don't I? 
I mean, the hours after the party, and the hours after that. You do have good days still. You know you do. Not really. They said it. They said it. They said the title of the movie in the movie. And guys, I'm going to come back to that at the end, because I think I finally figured out what that means on this viewing of the, of the film. When he calls her Mrs. Dalloway again, that's where I wrote, oh, fuck off with the Mrs. Dalloway. When he tells her to tell him a story so that she'll be distracted, so that he can get on that windowsill. Yeah, oh my God. And she's telling him about going to buy the flowers and all the things she did today, the food she made, and he's just slowly pulling himself onto that window ledge. He's talking to her, emphasizing the small moments of his life, right? Mm -hmm. Like falling in love with her back at Wellfleet. How simple but beautiful it was. Just her walking out onto the balcony with the wind in her hair, and it's so special. I'm afraid I can't make it to the party, Clarissa. The party doesn't matter. You've been so good to me, Mrs. Dalloway. I love you. I don't think two people could have been happier than we've been. Guys, he quotes Virginia Woolf's suicide note. And then he throws himself out that window. I almost can't stand Meryl's scream. I know, it's awful. Can I go on just a little rant here? Okay. Okay, first of all, the translation of that sweet little boy into this incredibly destroyed person is devastating. Yeah. Devastating. And also, all of his many problems with standing, how dare he do this to her? I mean, I know. I'm feeling her anger, like... I know that he was unwell and not thinking clearly, but it's not like he didn't plan this all day. And what a horrible thing to do to someone you love. You mean specifically the act being done in front of them. This is incredibly selfish. He wanted her there with him in his last moments. I get that. I do. But you still think it was unforgivable that he did it. Suicidal ideation is a horrible terrifying place to live it is i get that i really do i don't i don't personally but i understand it but how dare he do this to her after everything that she has done for him yeah what a horrible thing she now has to live with seeing and the transition right back into him as a little boy In 1951, celebrating Dan's birthday. Unforgivable. Unforgivable. When Laura's in the bathroom and Dan's like asking her to come to bed and telling her that he ran into Ray, Kitty's husband, and that she might be in the hospital. Nothing serious, he said, just a checkup. I'm terrified. Why? And then she says she's terrified that Kitty will disappear under her breath. I'm like, sweetheart, you're gay. You're gay and you're trapped. This kills me, this poor woman. She's hardly made any of her own choices in her life. I feel like she's been mostly told what's going to happen. And I think in that moment, she realizes she cares more about the neighbor lady than she does about her own husband. I know, yeah. And that's a problem. And then in 2001, we're throwing away all the luscious food for that party. All the crab, all of the cheese, all of the, you know, 
appetizers. And then there's a buzz at the door. It's Laura. It's aged Laura. Guys, the makeup could have been a little better. Yeah, 50, 50 years have elapsed since 1951, so... But guys, she's here. She's alive, and she's in New York. Laura's basically telling Clarissa, listen, we didn't speak often. Obvious reasons. He killed me in the novel, and I, uh, <laughs> and I know why. And Clarissa straight up's like... You left Richard when he was a child. I left both my children. I abandoned them. They say it's the worst thing a mother can do. And I mean, like, that's good to hear her say that. At least she can sleep at night and she can say that. Like, she's made peace with the fact that she did abandon her entire family. Not just her son and her husband, but also her newborn daughter. She decided to leave her family when the baby was born. And she did. She went, she got, she got up one day, made breakfast, went to the bus stop, went to Canada, became a librarian. Which she, is probably how, you know, she got to know who Richard really was as a person, was through the library. And she basically tells her she has no regrets about what she did. The way she describes it, she says, I chose life. It was death. I chose life. Yeah, I know. It's like, what was I going to do? Stay in that unhappy existence and maybe take my own life? Or leave this life and go somewhere and have a new one? Julia bringing Laura a cup of tea just overwhelms me. For whatever reason, it makes me want to cry. Because even though she knows the horrible thing this woman did when she abandoned her family, abandoned that child, those two children... And now they're all dead and she's still living. Yeah. Having lived the life she wanted. Which, again, it's okay she doesn't feel bad about it. She didn't have any choices up until that point. She started making her own choices. What Virginia said. She had some say over her own life. But she understands that it had a profound impact on that child's life. Yeah. He's dead now. Yeah. Which you can't lay all of the fall at her feet for that. But Absolutely like, not. It's not like she, she didn't play a part. This selfless compassion that Julia shows her right here at the end, it just overwhelms me. I thought you might like a cup of tea. Oh, my goodness. Thank you, dear. I feel like I'm stealing your room. Um, we put the food away, so if you're at all hungry in the night, just help yourself. Where will you sleep? Oh, the sofa. Oh. Oh, I'm sorry. Good night, sweetheart. Good night. Do you feel like the cup of tea is the forgiveness she doesn't feel like she's going to get from anybody? Maybe. Like, it's symbolic of the forgiveness. Of course Julia can't actually forgive her. She didn't do anything to Julia. But, like, it's almost like this intergenerational symbolic forgiveness understanding that she didn't have any choices and she made really the only choice there was. Mm-hmm. She wanted to continue living. Yeah. This is where we transition back into the suicide note from the beginning, Virginia Woolf's suicide letter. These are the final lines of the letter. Leonard. Always the years between us. Always the years. Always 
the love. Always. The hours. Credits on that sad shit. Oh my god. Oh my god. Hey, hey, hey. Take my hands. Take my hands. I'm sorry. You're sorry for putting me through this? I'm sorry about that. You're goddamn right. You're sorry. I am. I'm sorry. I had a rough day. Talk about what you were going to talk about earlier. Yeah, guys, I've always wondered about the title of this film, this book, why they called it The Hours, why that's significant. And, you know, The Hours was the working title of Mrs. Dalloway. Was it really? Yeah, like at the time in the movie that she would have been writing it, she probably would have been referring to it as that in her head, Mm -hmm. if not on paper. And it's just, it's it really wasn't until I watched it this time that I think I finally at least have my own personal understanding of that line or of that concept. Like what Richard says right before he takes his own life, that, yeah, he may not have to go to the party, which is supposed to be a big, happy event, but he still has to deal with the hours after the party. And in between. And in between. Mm -hmm. And as a person who's struggled with suicidal ideation and having other people turn to me and go, well, isn't there so much to live for? Aren't there so many happy moments that you're going to miss out on? Things like babies, milestones, happy holidays, that kind of thing. And the thing is, is that that is not what the majority of life is made up of. Those moments are wonderful, and I wouldn't trade moments like that for anything in the world. But the truth is, it's not what life is mostly made up of. Life is mostly made up of the mundanity and the small things in life. You know how they say you have to appreciate the small things in life. Mm-hmm. And that's very, very true. Because that's what most of life is. It's the hours mm-hmm. between the significant events Damn. that make up this life. And that's why when it comes to being a person who struggles with that ideation, it's the small moments that make or break us. Yeah. If we can't find joy... Or find peace in the mundanity, in the inanity, in the hours, most of life will be unbearable. And I feel like it's that much harder for queer individuals. Absolutely! Oh my god, absolutely! When you can not even barely have the kind of relationship that you want to fill those hours with, it's something. Even if it's just a relationship with yourself as who you truly are. Yeah. It doesn't even matter if it's somebody else. Or even even the happy moments that we're supposed to have. Mm-hmm. The special moments. If you've got a shit family who is not accepting of you or yeah. your identity. I bet your hours are bleak. Yeah. Like, that is just, that is what it is. It's about how bearable are the hours. It's what you can bear, says Laura. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I think I saw this for the first time like 10 years ago. I saw it when I was in high school. And I do remember how it, after I saw it, I can remember the credits going and being like, Jesus, it helped me think about some things I hadn't really thought about before at the tender age of 15 or 16. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And it's a it's definitely a good movie to help you process these kinds of very profoundly upsetting subjects. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I, I'm very glad that I saw this at the age that I did and learned to love it at the age that I did. And 
obviously we've got just great performances all throughout the combination of the writing, the music, Michael Cunningham's material. It's just, it's a really great project. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm glad that people have it to examine. It's sad as fuck, but happy pride, everybody. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, man. Don't you have to be sad as fuck before you can take pride? That not how life is supposed to be? Okay. All right. We need to make it less like that? Okay. I hear you. <laughs> Guys, you know, I think it's going to be a surprise our last week of June. Yeah, only because we're fighting over what we should cover last. Yeah, I don't know. We've got some ideas, but like, all right, we'll surprise you with it. We are of two minds of what to cover next. And so, uh, yeah, it's going to be a surprise next week. And that's okay. You'll have the hours in between to think about what we're going to publish. Fire me if you want. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. It's been nice. Go follow us on Twitter at Kick and Stream. K-I-C-K-N-S-T-R-E-A-M. You can write the show at Kicking and Streaming Podcast at gmail.com. That's with an and, not an ampersand. And don't forget, folks, please be practicing the three R's. Rate, review, retweet. Rate, review, retweet. Folks, we want everyone to come and join this little queer watch party. Remember, guys, a super pro-homo thing you can do <laughs> this Pride Month. Would you like to be pro-homo? Go support us on Patreon for just five dollars become a little onion at the five you'll be so glad you did more quality content coming to you from kicking and streaming until then i'm carrie i'm ross and as always sorry mom Mom.